Well, hello there, listeners. It's Susie New here, President of the Australian Society of Anaesthetists, and welcome to our podcast. This is episode 28 of Australian Anaesthesia, a podcast where we talk about all things relevant to anaesthetists in Australia. Firstly, happy International Women's Day, and what better way to celebrate it than by sharing this podcast episode with you. In today's episode, I'm chatting with Rosie Zaka and Izzy Cooper. Rosie is an anaesthetist from Coffs Harbour, and Izzy is from Geelong. And we are talking about a document that they wrote called Pregnancy and the Anaesthetist. And guess what? It's all about working during pregnancy. We also discuss a literature review that Rosie wrote called Maternal Wellbeing and Pregnancy Outcomes in Anaesthetic Trainees. And that was published in the journal that's produced by the ASA called Anesthesia and Intensive Care. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So even though this episode is about pregnancy, it is not just for women. If you work with people who are pregnant, if you support people who are pregnant, if your partner, your colleagues, your friends might be people who are becoming pregnant, then this episode is also for you. All right. Hope you enjoy listening. Thanks for um, giving up some time and having this chat with me. No worries. Thanks very much for having us. Thanks, Rosie, also for sending that article that you wrote. I thought it'd be just good to go through some of the highlights of that. Many anaesthetists do find themselves pregnant at some point in their career, so it's pretty relevant to about 50% of anaesthetic trainees and almost that many anaesthetists. And you obviously would have been pregnant when, when you were training. I did both my exams pregnant. Oh, my I know. goodness. I thought that <laughs> both are bad, so why not just do them together rather than prolong it? Yeah, you know, you can't obviously do much fun stuff when you're studying anyway. So just do them together and get them out of the way. Well, Dad, crazy. I was 14 weeks pregnant when I sat the primary exam with my first daughter. And then I had a toddler all the way through my training. And then I didn't have my second one till after my final fellowship exam because I'd learnt my lesson that I should not be pregnant and do exams at the same time. So you deliberately put off having a second child until after? 100%, yep. So I'm looking at the pregnancy and the anaesthetist document, which I'll put a link to in the show notes. And I'm wondering, what was the motivation behind writing it? I was pregnant with my second and they very kindly said, what would you like to do? When would you like to stop nights? And what do you want to do with your roster? And I was very grateful, but also got very anxious about what the appropriate response to that should be. I didn't want to say, oh, I don't want to do nights for the next number of weeks and then find out all of my colleagues had been asked to pick up the extra nights and they'd be annoyed and hugely inconvenienced. And I didn't want the department saying, oh, she's asked for this and asked for that and it's going to muck the roster up. So I looked around for any guidance to help me answer the question, which seems like a simple question. And there was absolutely nothing. There'd been um, something from the UK about the average gestation that anaesthetic trainees stop nights and acute clinical work. Um, But that was all I could find. And Rosie was concurrently, unbeknownst to me, doing the literature review. And we got in touch actually via the ASA, via Richard and via you, Susie. I had had a very difficult pregnancy And when I went on to maternity leave at the very beginning of 2018, I decided that on my mat leave, I would do a literature review because I had no idea whether or not there was any evidence out there about whether there was any potential harm because of the stresses that some pregnant workers are under, not not necessarily just anaesthetists, but most interested in medical work. And so for me, 
I thought I would not find anything and there was a lot of literature out there. And so I decided to write a literature review while I was on mat leave as a therapeutic process, but in some parts, advocacy and sharing of information for improving conditions for the future. And then, as Izzy said, we met through Richard and the ASA trainee member group, and that helped us to combine forces, so to speak, and try and create a document for others so that there's some guidance in some ways, or at least support uh, or an acknowledgement that this is uh, a challenge that many anaesthetic trainees and anaesthetists face and, and aren't sure how to approach it. Good work and good plug for the ASA there. That's often what we do is we find that we bring people together and help give them a voice. 2018, that's only a couple of years ago. Did it surprise you that a document didn't already exist? Because women have been having babies and doing anaesthesia training for many, many years. Yes, I couldn't believe there was absolutely nothing there. Is the having a family resource document that is not very specific to being pregnant at work and returning to work. I mean, you obviously talk to other women that have had babies and the general gist is that it used to be that you'd wait till you got your consultant job or near your consultant job and then start your family. But I think the average age of starting the training program must be getting to be over 30. So it's really unrealistic at the moment. Rosie, you mentioned before your literature review. Is that the one that was published in Anesthesia and Intensive Care? Yes, it was. Because that's that's a great document. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I think as many mothers would understand, women are amazing and can achieve incredible things. When you have work and family to juggle, things may not happen in the timeline that you would prefer, but you will get them done. You know, Izzy and I were discussing this yesterday and saying, oh, we would have loved to have done all of this sooner and much more quickly and efficiently. But the truth is that we're actually doing something. So in the end, I think we should stop beating ourselves up. In some ways, you're contributing to the profession in a way that other people may not have been in a position to be able to do, but would appreciate. So going through the document that you've written, the pregnancy and the the anaesthetist one, what are some of the main considerations? I think a big thing that we've tried to highlight is finding support from colleagues in senior positions, in equal positions, and also finding support out of work, because you're never, ever, ever going to be the first person in that department to be pregnant. It's happened before, and there's a wealth of experience and advice out there. It's just one of the aims is to open up that conversation and to give supervisors of training and heads of departments some guidance. For say women who are a little bit reluctant to seek support within their immediate workplace, are there any places that they can go outside that you can suggest? There are sort of generic pregnancy support agencies. And then I think there are advocacy agencies within medicine more broadly, like the AMA. But then there are also organizations like the ASA and I think welfare or now well-being special interest groups are a pretty good place to go. Some departments have really excellent mentoring programs that are kept quite separate from supervisors of training. If you're a trainee, maybe if people don't feel comfortable with their own mentoring programs in their institution, then they should feel that there are other people that they can talk to in terms of support. I know Izzy and I personally would be more than happy to be contacted by anybody about any of these issues. And I know that there are many more women out there who who are really happy to provide some support. Topical anesthesia for medical mums the source of all wisdom. And at the crash course, you obviously get to meet lots of people in the same boat and now facilitate the course. 
And I have been thinking that we should set up either a state or national kind of mentoring scheme for people, especially people working in small regional hospitals that may not have access to advice within their department like a list of emails and phone numbers of people that are willing to be contacted on a national basis. We've just starting one up in Victoria, a peer support program, just to have a list of people on the ASA website that are happy to be contacted. I got the best advice from, he must be at least 70. He's a supervisor of training. And I was saying to him, I'm just not sure when to have my second baby. Shall I do it now? Which was just for the exam or wait. And he said, I can't answer that, but work's always going to be there. The best time for you is the best time for your family. So just do whatever. Don't worry. But actually, you'd be surprised at who gives good advice. It can be different though for different women, can't it? Because you mentioned that in the document, there can be some stigma associated with it. Did you come across either that personally or from talking with other people? I think there is a general feeling that departments are I don't know if it's unwilling, but they are worried about being perceived in a, in the wrong way. So I think there is a worry about offending. My understanding is that it's still quite variable, Susie. I know that I have had two different experiences and one of my experiences felt very unsupported. Anecdotally, we all have heard of people who've had really great experiences and they, they should be celebrated. And I think there are also some people who have found that they've had very difficult situations that have arisen as part of working whilst pregnant. But I definitely know women who have concealed their pregnancies, especially in their training years when they've had to move rotations. I still think there are genuine worries from people today about timing, especially when you're moving around and you may or may not have worked in a department. You don't know how supportive that department will be. I genuinely hear from a lot of trainees that there are worries. Whether or not they're founded always, it's difficult to say. But if you haven't worked in a department and you don't have good communication from them on issues like that, then you can't assume that they will be very supportive, even though in the long run, I would like to think that that could be something we could assume. I think Izzy's point was a, a good one is ultimately, hope, hopefully, people are having babies at the time that's best for them and their families. I wanted to go through some of people's rights in the workplace in terms of being able to take time off and attend appointments. That's a bit of a tricky section because it's variable between states. For example, in Victoria, there's no such thing as, I think it's called prenatal leave in Queensland. Essentially, you have an equivalent to one full-time week in Queensland to attend appointments and that can be split up however you need. However, a lot of people aren't necessarily aware about it. I certainly wasn't aware of it until I contacted HR when I was pregnant last time. Whereas Victoria doesn't specifically have any leave entitlements like that and you'd just be expected to either book your appointment around work or just access your standard personal leave. And then even for length of maternity leave, like paid maternity leave, there's variations between the states. I can't remember the exact figures. I know the lowest is Victoria with 10 full-time weeks. I think some other states are 14 full-time weeks and depending on how long you've worked there. So it is very variable, but we've tried to summarise it into the table. Well, and just to clarify that the Fair Work Act in Australia, which is overarching legislation Australia-wide, People are entitled to take 12 months off for parental leave. However, it doesn't mean it'll be paid. And I think people often feel pressure to go back to work because they're not having paid leave, but there are often options to take half pay for a longer period of time 
or potentially take other types of leave, such as long service leave, to continue that leave. But nobody by law can make somebody come back in less than 12 months unless they choose to. And if you want to come back within two years of starting parental leave, they have to have the job for you, which is I didn't know that before my second pregnancy. And it was a brilliant person in HR said, oh, just let us know when you want to come back. You can come back whenever. And I said, oh, does it not have to fit in with the rotations? No, no, just come back whenever you want, as long as it's within the two years. So it's helpful to actually speak to your HR department. I just wanted to clarify with that parental leave that the second year uh, is at the discretion of the employer and is provided for in the Fair Work Act, but it's not a definite. Your employer would have to agree to that. Okay, that's good to know. So one year you're okay. Second year, negotiate with your employer and also think about your medical registration implications. I would second that in saying that HR would often provide much more useful information to you than perhaps your director or someone who's running the rosters because what's been done historically in medicine is not necessarily what is supported by HR or policy. So, Certainly, HR is an excellent place to go to clarify what your rights are within a particular organisation or within a state. For example, in Queensland, long service leave doesn't even come out of Queensland health pay. It comes out of Queensland government pools. So there's a whole bunch of things that people might worry that if they're asking for certain types of leave, that it's going to disadvantage their department. And I think there are many instances where there may be a stigma associated with that. But this is about trying to support families to have the time that they require and the support they require within what they're entitled to, to make their family work. And everybody's family is different. Most of us would have spoken to our department director as our first port of call and expected them to know all the answers. And I personally never even thought about going to HR. Uh, So that's a really good tip. But just say you've got an HR that are a little bit less than helpful. Have you got any other tips where people might be able to go to find out that information? On the AMA website, there are the links to the EBAs, which ultimately that's where the buck stops. So that's where the individual HRs get their information from. And I think if people are having any trouble, then this is definitely a very good reason to be a member of the AMA because you can just ring the AMA workforce people up and they can give you very quick advice. I didn't actually realize that you could take up to two years off and they could still hold a job. For people who just say, do you want to take up to two years off or more than a year? What happens in terms of medical registration? Um, So you can put your medical registration on hold. So you apply to APRA. However, I didn't do that. I just left it because by all accounts, re-registering is quite hard. In New Zealand, you put it on hold with an email And then you email to say, I want it restarted. But that's not the case in Australia. Obviously, it would save a lot of money. And ANSCO is very easy, applying for the interrupted training. And you can have up to 104 weeks, so two years of interrupted training with no issues. And they will actually refund you if you've paid already. And with APRA, you've still got to maintain currency of work. Is that right? They have a requirement, either number of weeks worked in a 12-month period or in a three-year period to maintain currency. It's worth looking at that because that may or may not change over time. And then that obviously ties in with return to work programs. And then for some people returning, they would have to notify APRA if they'd taken a longer period of time off. However, that does get quite complicated. As Izzy has written in the document, it's worth checking the APRA website before you take your parental leave. Because some people go and leave and then they, for whatever reason, they need to take more leave. It's worth then having an understanding of whether that will affect your registration. 
I remember when I was pregnant, the next question is, how long are you going to take off? And you'd give a number and they'd always be like, oh, but you know, give yourself some room there. You might change your mind. And there was always this thought that you need to be a little bit flexible in your planning. That's a good point for workplaces to allow people to be flexible with their return to work plans. And yes, that is the first question people normally ask. I, for both organized six months and Orla came five weeks early so it ended up being an extra month but I gave myself longer than I thought I would need rather than doing it the other way around and for me I took 12 months off because I knew that I I was not having any more children and I just wanted a really really lovely year at home with my kids and I loved every minute of it but I did have to go on to maternity leave sooner than expected because of complications and again a lot of people conceptualize that you're going to be fine and that you'll just be growing a human being, but you'll just be exactly the same. And some people are, and they're amazing powerhouses and continue to work until quite late. And that's wonderful for them. But I think it's a lot to expect that of yourself when you're not sure how things are going to go. It's a no brainer. If there are concerns, then you obviously have to put your health first. And unfortunately for some people, they really struggle if they have to go onto uh, parental leave sooner because then they feel they have to come back sooner because of financial concerns or whatever. And I think that can be a tricky situation. So in my mind, the best situation is uh, a pregnant worker being supported to work for as long as they wish to work in a way that is sustainable and healthy. And that comes down to the concept of a pregnancy-friendly workplace. What are some of the features of a pregnancy-friendly workplace? There's a great document. So the College of Physicians have an Australasian Faculty of Occupational Environmental Medicine. They have a guide to pregnancy and work, which is quite a recent document. They state the benefits of a pregnancy-friendly workplace in addition to meeting legal obligations include supporting healthy pregnancies and healthy babies, engaging and supporting women in reproductive capacity, which improves productivity in the long term, retaining talented and skilled staff, reducing absenteeism and the effect of presenteeism, which is a really fantastic concept. I love that concept. Raising awareness and actively addressing workplace health risks to employees, facilitating return to work following pregnancy and parental leave, promoting healthier lifestyle choices in the long term. They're the benefits. And if you work back from that, you can see what that would involve. So it's about being proactive, being flexible because everybody's pregnancy and their individual needs are different. So rather than trying to not say anything because you don't want to incriminate yourself in some way, be really proactive about saying, hey, you're pregnant. This is great. How can we support you to achieve the best you can working while you're pregnant. Most anaesthetists have small to medium families or no children at all. And these are just a few pivotal times in somebody's career where I know for me, if you're well supported, you feel great loyalty and you're really keen to come back and contribute. Everybody has a long career in anaesthesia, we hope, and they will make a great contribution to the profession. And so everything that we invest into pregnant workers comes back they did a commentary in the Harvard Business Review on how best to support pregnant workers. And so support doesn't mean helping people. They used a psychological model called threat to self-esteem. So if people feel that they're somehow unable to manage their professional and their non-work roles, then they're actually less likely to want to come back to work after. So we're not asking people to help pregnant women. We're asking them to support them to feel confident and competent to manage their work and non-work roles. And that will obviously continue further on into when they come back from their parental leave. It's really interesting because for some people, they might think that that's the same thing 
but help and support are not the same thing. And so I think that's where people can sometimes feel afraid to provide support because they don't want to be perceived that they're offering the wrong thing. But I would say that being proactive is the number one step and not necessarily putting the whole responsibility back on the pregnant worker. And I guess that's where this resource document ties in. At least there is a level of guidance there that gives people an idea about how other pregnant anaesthetists have managed or the resources that they've used and hopefully will allow workplaces and employers to be a bit more proactive in approaching pregnant workers. The onus should be on the institution rather than the individual. Even though the resource document is not prescriptive in any way, it can't actually enforce organisations to do these things, but it takes a little bit of the onus off the person. I think it's about building someone's self-esteem so that when they come back to work and they're juggling work and family, they feel that they can do it because they felt empowered whilst pregnant and that they've been successful in working whilst pregnant. It feels like engagement is the key here and engaging with pregnant women and asking them what they want. Clearly, you need to engage with people on an individual basis and let people describe what they think are their risks that are important to them and then how to mitigate them. And I think moving on from that, as you said, Susie, keeping people engaged because the situation can change as well and people's needs can change over time. Exactly. Pregnancy is not the same at the start as it is at the end. Certainly not. You can't predict how you're going to react to having a baby. You could be the biggest workaholic one minute and then suddenly you have your baby and your whole life changes and you have to reassess what your priorities are. And at the end of the day, it's your decision how much you work and the time you're away from your family versus the time that you're at work. You can't be everywhere and do everything. I wanted to go through some of the occupational hazards. This is a really common one. What are your thoughts on x-rays? As long as you're standing the two metres away with a single layer of lead on, rather than a double layer, because the double layer actually is bad from a musculoskeletal point of view, that is safe. If you talk to uh, radiologists, that's also what they've practically done. And then there are some that say you can be even nearer angios. They have pregnant workers right up against the x-rays and they think it's safe. But I think the safe recommendation is single layer of lead and two meters away. And does MRI come into that? So MRI is only not safe from an acoustic noise point of view. There's actually no radiation risks, which was something I didn't realize until researching the document. In my mind, the least number of occupational hazards, the better. Often people will roster pregnant people not on the CT list or an angiography list or uh, a list where there's lots of x-ray. And it certainly feels supportive for pregnant workers to offer to not roster them routinely to lists where there's x-ray. Yes, to be given the option to discuss what lists that you want to do and not want to do. I think the time where it's tricky is out of hours, but it's almost unavoidable. There's been a lot of talk about the anaesthetic agents themselves, so nitrous and the volatiles. Did you find that you'd want to change your anaesthetic technique while you were pregnant? I'm a TIVA person anyway, but I was working um, at the kids actually, obviously doing loads of gas inductions during my second pregnancy. It worried me slightly, I suppose, but all the evidence the harm was pre-scavenging and knowing that now the scavenging is good was reassuring. I think I probably tried to do slightly more IV inductions than I otherwise would. 
and also be aware that some rooms will not be scavenged like endoscopy suites and angiography ct etc so if you're doing gas inductions in places like that you need to be very careful and potentially there's an option that someone else can take that exposure for you particularly pediatric anaesthetists and trainees. I think it's more of an issue than the occasional exposure. I know a lot of people didn't like doing ortho when they were pregnant because of the x-ray risk, but also because of the cement risk. Yeah, the evidence for that is really poor. There's been some studies done, not in anaesthetists, but in orthopods. It's felt to be safe. I've talked to some female orthopedic surgeons who are just happy to stay in the room. But if it was safe to do so, I'd go out the room. Has there been much in the way of studies specifically looking at women in anaesthesia or anaesthetic nurses? No Australian studies. But hopefully when our survey gets underway and sent out, we'll have some data from Australian anaesthetists. So what's your survey looking at? It is... A survey that's going to be sent out to a thousand Australian anaesthetists or trainees to try and capture people's experiences of working whilst pregnant and or returning to work. And we will be looking at what occupational hazards people are exposed to. We'll be looking at maternal health and also neonatal outcomes and a big focus on the psychological side of things and support in the workplace. Well, we had a wish list and we had to cut it down a lot. They're the things we're really interested in. Susie, back to your earlier question, there is research for people working in theatres, really, really old historical stuff. So it included when Halifane was around and there were significant risks of a bunch of different things. There's a lot of research out there. There are some associations, but it's very hard to prove causation because it's so complicated and there's so many different factors and so many occupational hazards So in my literature review, I came across some studies looking at occupational hazards and exposures and then outcomes. And I found that it is really complicated. There are a lot of different factors. But what we do in our everyday work includes a lot of the risks for preterm birth and low for gestational age birth weight babies that are potentially, you know, linked to longer term health problems in the baby. And so I felt that this was something that we should look into just within our cohort because that's what I'm most interested in. I think it's a good point. I remember someone making the point to me when I was pregnant that you can't always look to your peers and ask for advice and you can't always, say, ask the surgeons because, say, a surgeon might do one or two or three theatre lists a week where they're handling cement, whereas we may be in theatre five days a week. And in those five days, it's vascular with angiography one day, general surge with lap collies the next day, orthopaedics, paediatrics. And I'm glad that you're focusing on anesthesia because I think our risks are a little bit different by the nature of our work. Certainly. Working within the operating theatre definitely introduces some unique occupational hazards on top of all the other occupational hazards that occur within working in medicine and just being a pregnant worker in general. You also mentioned in there one of the hazards is infectious diseases. They're often hard to avoid. It's reasonable to phone ID and ask for their advice if you've got that luxury. Every infection obviously has different risks and at different stages of pregnancy. So the information you receive might even vary as you progress through your pregnancy. Um, So there are obviously some big no's. You don't want to be around patients with flu, etc. But 
CMV might vary depending on what your CMV status is as well. So I think it's variable and very reasonable to get specific advice. I liked, Rosie, in your literature review, there were some very specific recommendations on lifting, which I thought was really useful because we transfer patients all the time, every day, multiple times a day. This actually comes from the Royal Australian College of Physicians, and that's a recommendation for Australian pregnant workers. They have specific recommendations for weight and I am not convinced that we are able to stick to that very easily. The reason why I included those specific numbers is because they are quoted as being recommended and they are relevant for us. And this is where help is fine because that kind of help is support. If you say, no, the pregnant person doesn't transfer patients unless you've got a pregnant worker who's adamant that that's what they want to do. Then I think if you say, hey, look, this is a recommendation. Let me do the lifting for you. That makes it easier for people. I, I think what it comes down to is we get this whole list of things that make us feel anxious at work. A lot of the hazards are particularly worrying in the first trimester and people may not have even declared their pregnancy at this point in time. I I think this is the tricky bit is that the first trimester is probably one of the biggest worries for some of the specific hazards we have in anesthesia. And we also may or may not have a supportive enough environment at work where people feel that they can say they're pregnant early enough to have the changes made to their lists to reduce these risks. And, And obviously there are other, you know, the ergonomic hazards continue on all the way through and particularly relevant later on in pregnancy. We all know that hard physical work will well and truly bring on preterm labor. I think we all know somebody who pushed it too far. It's really tricky, isn't it, that first trimester? And some people have the luxury, I suppose, of being in that supportive department and being able to have that conversation with their boss that they are thinking about getting pregnant. Even that is a really difficult conversation to have. Have you got any advice for people, say, in that situation? Well, actually, we have evidence that stress and a whole bunch of hazards at work can affect your fertility as well. And we haven't even broached this issue where we think that there are a lot of women in medicine who are undergoing assisted reproduction just to get pregnant. And so sometimes it's not just it happened, it's well and truly premeditated. And in that instance, women are going to be concerned about their exposures and they may not even be pregnant yet. I think it comes down to the principle of minimizing exposures as much as is possible and accepting that in most instances, if there's a few isolated exposures that in general we think people are going to be safe. But again, we we don't have great evidence on any of this. If you don't know the department, it's obviously difficult to identify that person that you feel able to talk to. But I think generally my experience, supervisors of training have always been approachable or a welfare officer might be another person that you can talk to because I think it's important that somebody knows that you may not be feeling great or if you're undergoing IVF and needing lots of appointments, you just want to have at least one person that's in your corner looking out for you. I think people are a little bit scared about telling people at work. In this case, as you say, I think SOTs, welfare advocates, hopefully are are people who are used to holding people's trust and confidences and can help to broker that sort of situation for individuals with work plans in the department. I was going to ask one more thing. There's a section here on finances and considerations. Yeah, that was uh, eye-opening actually because you get paid parental leave from your health system if you're in the public health system. But you have to meet certain criteria to qualify for that. So it's normally, I can't remember the state to state, but 12 months continuous service to get the paid parental leave. 
Um, then obviously, if you're a private anaesthetist, you don't get paid parental leave. But then there's the Centrelink payment that, unbeknownst to me, includes your salary packaging. So that sort of can be a bit stressful if you're not anticipating that. And for some people, they have to learn how to apply for Centrelink numbers. I do think it's worth the hassle, though, because it does help to pay those bills for a whole extra 18 weeks. And you can double dip. That's what it's designed for. So even if you get paid parental leave from your workplace, you can also get the Centrelink paid parental leave as well. That's good to know. We talked about the pregnancy-friendly workplace. Are there any specific changes that you'd like to see in our workplaces in the future? I would like for entry and exit from the workforce to be normalised for males and for females. So to be able to have parental leave and it to not be a big deal, because in the 30 something years you will work as an anaesthetist, having your six months off at the end of the day is not the end of the world. But more specifically, I think people just to feel less secretive should be a celebration, not something to hide and be worried about. And I love the way that you said normalised. I think it's also in Rosie's literature review. Often I hear the workforce being feminised and it's not being feminised. It's just being normalised. Absolutely. Thank you for using that word. I might add in, Susie, there was a study in the States with these recurring themes and they found a desire for mentorship on work-family integration. And I think we can, you know, the ASA, we can do something there for sure. Definitely. I'm open to ideas like that. Absolutely. And the value of supportive colleagues and faculty can't be overestimated. I feel there's a great variability in the Australian anaesthetic departments across Australia and there are some departments doing just incredibly wonderful things and I think that should be recognised and celebrated and we should use those examples for how we can encourage other departments that may not feel confident to support pregnant workers to get on board and see some positive change over time. Yeah, I think if there's anything the ASA can do to help, any ideas, I love hearing them. I think it was also a really good point about normalising leave, that it's not just for women and that one of the biggest drivers for gender equity in the workplace is men taking parental leave. 100%. I think we all know anaesthetists who are the primary breadwinners, me included, and society doesn't recognise and value as much the stay-at-home dad compared to the stay-at-home mum. And I 100% agree with you. Gender equity means supporting dads to be active, involved parents. And it's a wonderful opportunity to allow parents to navigate between them in a family who's going to be the person who's at home more at one time or another. And each family is different. And so for some families, the mum will want to be home more, but not all families. So definitely support gender equity in that area as well. It's a big, it's a big area that could improve. A few years ago when I was on the Welfare SIG Executive, I organised a session at one of the conferences on gender literacy and I really wanted to find a man who was a stay-at-home parent to talk about some of the issues and the stigma and I couldn't find one. I found many men who stayed at home but none of them wanted to come forward and speak which I thought that spoke volumes to me. Mm. The silence spoke volumes about the stigma that they face. And partly it was also they had to juggle kids and all that sort of stuff to come and talk. But it's amazing that women have got to the point where we can talk about it. I'm sure my husband wouldn't mind saying, but he grew up in a very conservative family and his parents don't value and recognize the work he does as an amazing stay-at-home dad. And that is actually really hard for him. It's also very socially isolating and there isn't the same support network for stay-at-home dads. 
there is significant psychological stress that goes along with being isolated and finding yourself in a situation where you may not have ever imagined, you know, him growing up on a country farm in South Australia. He would have never imagined he would be a stay-at-home dad. And, you know, to share that role is probably more ideal for a lot of families, but sometimes the logistics of that is actually really hard. So I guess the take-home message is that as a society, we need to recognize and value what dads do more because historically it hasn't been valued as much as I think it should be. I'm hoping that COVID with all the homeschooling has at least taught us to value teachers. We do value them so greatly. Exactly. We've all had to learn through homeschooling how hard their job is. So thank you, teachers out there. (laughs) Absolutely. 100%. Look, thank you, both of you. Thank you very much for your time today. There are hopefully a lot of people out there getting pregnant, so you should be, which is great. It's a wonderful time. Well, thanks for giving us the opportunity to talk about everything. Thanks so much for having us. Well, it's always wonderful chatting with two inspiring women and I couldn't thank Rosie and Izzy enough for giving up their time and having this conversation with me. You would have heard in the episode us talking about a mentoring scheme. So that's in the pipeline. I can't really announce much more on that. But what I can announce is the ASA scholarship to do the crash course. So the crash course is a course for people who are returning from a period of leave. It doesn't have to be parental leave. It could be other types of leave and it's to help people gain their confidence and skills in returning to work. I do chat with Cara Ellen and Jeanette Wright, who are the masterminds behind getting the crash course going in Australia. And that is in podcast episode number 26. So if you're interested in finding out more, I suggest you go back and listen to that. And if you're interested in doing Crash and you are an ASA member, then we will help subsidize the course for you because we want you to return to work and feel confident in doing so. We'll be looking to set up this mentoring scheme for people who are pregnant, contemplating becoming pregnant or have been pregnant and would like to contribute and maybe guide other people through the process. So if you're not an ASA member, I suggest you join so that you're the first to hear about these sorts of things when they're launched. And again, I'll put a link to the membership application form in the show notes. All right. In the meantime, happy International Women's Day and stay safe out there. This podcast was produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists. More podcasts can be found on the ASA website, asa.org.au. Music was La Toile Dance by Maidan, which can be found on the free music archive website. We hope you enjoyed listening.